It's time to accelerate. Hi, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Join me as I host conversations with the leading experts in sales, marketing, sales automation, sales process, leadership, management, training, coaching, any resource that I believe to help you accelerate the growth of your sales, your business, and most importantly, you. Hello and welcome to the show today. I'm Andy Paul with Bridget Gleason. Good Bridget morning. Gleason. Hey, good morning. And uh, thanks for joining us today, everybody, as we're going to talk about really what's the, you know, what constitutes good sales advice, I guess, is, is sort of the summary for today. And, and um, we're going to help dissect some things that we've seen online in terms of advice that other people are giving and, and give our opinions about whether that's useful or advice to follow or not. And we're going to lead off with talking about fear and greed. Great. Which seem to be topics that uh, always sort of come up with salespeople. And so I think you had found something online that talked about uh, the two emotions that most drive sales reps are fear and greed. And someone's talking about you should be structuring your sales compensation to use fear and greed as motivators. And so I guess really the first question we should talk about, and for the people listening, is do fear and greed really work as motivators for sales? Well, I, I mean, I'll answer that how I feel about it. I think that those are very um, primitive, sort of um, uh, primitive emotions. So there is a part of the brain that naturally is going to, we're DNA hardwired to have, to have some element of that. Do I think, though, that that is what I would build an effective, functional, high-performing sales team on? No. So, so I, I don't agree with it. I, I agree that there is a component that plays into it, but I think, at least today, a lot of the reps I deal with also have a more evolved state about what they want to do in sales in their careers. And you, you absolutely have to move past fear and greed if you want to get, if you want to get the most out of your sales reps and really have a, a, have a functional, high-performing sales team, which is what I'm after. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's sort of natural to, to a certain degree that, you know, sales reps are going to have a fear of failing, right? I mean, right. we all do to some degree or another. Is, is, right. I think that's just sort of natural and it's, it's really something we, we really have to overcome to some degree in terms of, of uh, succeeding in, in sales, right? Because we can become paralyzed by fear. And I think that's the thing that, that I've seen with companies where the CEOs or the sales managers lead through fear and intimidation is that what happens is that it's just the opposite. It really doesn't become a motivator. It actually becomes more of a you know paralyzer, if you will, or a paralytic agent. And that people are become afraid to take risks, become afraid to take chances, be afraid to, to uh, well, Let's say take risk and, and take chances because they're going to be you know hammered if they don't succeed. And and today, Andy, I think it for the modern day salesperson, we have they have to be willing to have some failure along the way. They're being challenged like never before. The things that they need to learn and the situations that they need to be in are different than they were even ten years ago. Mm. And I think cultivating a fear of failing is cultivating also an atmosphere that inhibits learning. And if we're really going to learn and take on new challenges and push the envelope, we are going to have, we're going to have failure. And I think that what we really need to do is, is make sure that we learn from failure, not avoid failure. So I don't, I, I, I completely agree with you that this fear and fear of failing and all of that is not, it's not a healthy emotion 
to cultivate in a sales org. As you said, some of it's natural. It's going to be there anyway, but we don't need to cultivate it. We don't need to build on that. Right. Now, this particular person that wrote this blog post that, that took this position advocating using fear and greed believes that fear is a strong motivator for the weak sales representatives. And again, I've never found that to be the case. And I think that weak sales representatives, the issue for them more often or not is not one of motivation, but really it's one of skills. It's one of sometimes of just repetition, being able to understand what it takes to succeed. And so if, if you're motivating purely from the perspective of fear, right? If you don't do this today, then you're going to lose your job. Then you're not teaching them anything that's going to help them survive or become a capable salesperson. Yeah, it's funny. I hadn't, uh, until you said it, when I read again this post, fear is a strong motivator for weak sales representatives. Well, I don't want weak sales representatives. And I, I don't know that there's any evidence out there, Andy, to support the fact that fear is going to be a motivator for anyone who's weak in sales or otherwise. And to your point, if you have a weak sales representative, they don't need any more fear. <laughs> it's there. They don't need any more. They, they've got that. So like you said, they either need to be coached up or coached out. But fear is it, fear's not going to get you where you fear Fear is not going to turn a weak sales rep into a strong one period. Won't do it. Yeah. I mean, I, I worked for a guy once who tried to manage through intimidation. And this was when I was at a fairly senior executive level and CEO of this uh, division I worked for, you know, used to just at sales meetings, used to just berate people, you know, incessantly. And, you know, I'd seen senior people almost brought to the verge of tears <laughs> yeah. trying to defend pipelines and so on. And it was really interesting is that, that, you know, it just, it didn't work, just didn't work. And yet this person didn't seem to be able to see through to the fact that it wasn't working. That wasn't having the desired, the desired impact. So I think for, if you're a CEO, if you're an entrepreneur, if you're a sales manager, you know, it's not that you want to have a light touch. It's just that, you know, sales is a profession where everybody understands what the cost of failure is. You know that going in, right? There's no hiding from it. It's not like you have a desk job and you're in marketing or you're in HR or payroll where, where things are a little little more fuzzy in terms of you know your objectives and what you need to get accomplished and whether you did and what your role in achieving them was. I mean, sales, it's unambiguously clear. You either do or you don't. And you go into the profession knowing that's the case. Right. There's nowhere to hide. There is nowhere to hide. So I think yeah, if you're someone that you've read and you've sort of accepted this thought that maybe fear is a motivator, I urge you to say, it really isn't because people understand what the cost, as I said, the cost of failure is in this profession. So as a manager, you want to be positive. What can you do to get people to succeed? That's what you want to help them with. Yeah, and I would imagine that folks listening to this conversation that you and I are having would wonder, well, if fear and greed aren't the motivators, what are? Yeah. Well, what have you found? Well, I, you know, the thing that I've, I've read about and I've also experienced with t in my own teams, there's been a lot of research lately done on how to motivate people in general. And in sales, you know, sales is the same. And when these researchers looked across industries and geographies and companies and verticals, and they looked at these high-performing teams across all these different sectors, and they, they looked to see, is it, is it because they've got, they hired better, they trained better? What was it that, that led to having a high-performing team? And what they found was the managers had very high expectations, and that just as we've got some hardwiring around fear and greed, we are also hardwired to live up to the expectations that people have of us. 
And going back to a point you made about being positive, one of the, the biggest things that I can do, the most impactful, is to set a very high bar for the people on my team and to have these high expectations and then to work with them to, to achieve those. But though in conjunction with me having the high expectations and them also having this hardwiring that tries to meet them, I found that to be super effective and supported by a lot of research. No, I think it's a great point. And I think the thing that goes along with the high expectations, and I mean, if you think about it with, I mean, that sort of relates back to almost sort of a parent-child relationship, right, to some degree. I mean, as kids growing up, at least in my case, I know, I mean, I, I was motivated by trying to meet my parents' expectations. Right. I mean, I knew if I failed, they were still going to love me nonetheless. But, but you know, there was a certain part of me that was motivated by living up to the expectations that, that I knew that they had. Um, but I think the other thing with a manager that goes along with setting expectations is also sort of modeling the behavior that you expect. Right. That goes along with that. So if you have high expectations for your team, it's having high expectations for yourself as well. Right? Yeah. I mean, I've, I've seen managers that set high expectations for the team, but then they're not living that in their own work. Right, they're not expecting the same of themselves. They're not showing the team they're expecting the same of themselves. And you know, I had a, a manager who was really became a mentor to me throughout my career and lifelong friend. And this was an early job. And, and you know, if I wasn't moving fast enough on a certain deal, you know, he'd pick up the phone and call the customer. You know, that's the worst place in the world to be as a salesperson, right? Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> and, and I remember several sort of painful Sunday phone calls with, with this particular individual where, you know, he's doing account reviews with me on a Sunday afternoon and he knew more about what was going on in the account than I did. That's a motivator, right? I mean, he had high expectations and I clearly wasn't meeting him and I didn't meet the expectations. You know, he took the bull by the horn because he wasn't going to let the account fail. Mm. And then suddenly it only took once or twice for that to happen for me to say, okay, <laughs> that that's not going to happen again. Yeah, that's that's a that's a great that, that's a great example, Andy, and a great example of someone leading the way and showing you how to do it. We we learn best by mimicking, and so being able to mimic and see how what it looks like when somebody does it effectively, that's really helpful. It's important that we can see it in a manager. It's important that we can see it amongst our peers. I think in an inside sales team, you know, we, we have such a great opportunity to, to, or the reps have such a great opportunity to learn from one another because they can observe the, the great sales reps, how they do it, and then and then mimic. And so mimicking a, a manager and, and being having somebody that's gonna lead the way like that, I think is, I, I, I totally plus one that comment, super important. Yeah, and I think that it's the lesson for, if you're a manager and if you're, an entrepreneur or a CEO is that, you know, there's this temptation to, once you get to a certain size, to sort of offload the sales responsibility to someone else. And when it comes to modeling behavior, I think as a CEO, you need to always have your, your sort of hand in the game, right? I mean, because people, as to your point, they learn by watching. And certainly in the case in like tech startups, a lot of times the founder through the early stages of the company is the salesperson, right? And they understand Definitely. not only because it was oftentimes their idea and they see the vision, but they are the most effective at selling. And that's a great time to get in and have a sales rep, a new sales rep, somebody go out on sales calls with that individual and learn really how to sell 
the product or the service that you have. And so it's really important for, in my mind, for the CEO and the sales manager, sales VP is to never get too far away from that, right? You don't want to be as involved as you were in the early stages, but never lose that completely because you know how to do it better than everybody else is make yourself a resource available for your sales team to be able to go out on a sales call with you and learn how to sell. Yeah, and I, I think the other side of that is a, a VP of sales needs to stay close to the, to the customer so that they can be aware and updated on really what's happening with with the pool of customers and that they're never so far away from it that they lose touch. I, I had this conversation with um, someone who, I, who I've worked with in the past and he was talking about the VP of sales at the company he was working for at the time and it was it's maybe a seven or eight hundred person company a fairly large sales team and he said wow he had commented to me you're out Bridget a lot visiting customers. I'm so surprised. I would think that's what your sales reps are doing or, or the, the sales managers. Our VP of sales never leaves the office. He doesn't talk to customers. His role is purely operational, making sure the functions, you know, making sure the, the running of the sales team is, is working smoothly. And we had a, we had a debate about that. He really felt that, that the VP of sales role was to just make his managers effective but not be out there interacting with customers. And I'd love to get your opinion on that, Andy. Yeah, well, I'd love to give it. What I'm going to do though first is take a break and let our sponsor's message uh, come on the air and then we will come back and talk about what is the appropriate role of VP of sales. So this is Andy Paul with Bridget, Bridget Gleason. Gleason. Yeah, and we'll be right back. Hi, this is Andy. Connect and Sell is used by sales reps at nearly a thousand companies, including hundreds of technology startups and several Fortune 500 companies, to overcome the challenges of getting prospects on the phone. Companies using Connect and Sell grow their revenues faster by enabling their sales reps to have more sales conversations in 90 minutes than they could otherwise achieve in an entire week. Connect and Sell can be deployed directly to your sales reps, or you can take advantage of their outbound on-demand service which delivers qualified prospect meetings scheduled directly on your sales reps' calendars. Visit connectandsell.com to learn more about how Connect and Sell can start filling your pipeline today. Okay, we're back. We're talking about fear, greed, the appropriate role of VP of sales. Not that necessarily are linear, connected in linear fashion there, but uh, right before the break, Bridget, you'd asked the question you talked about, a debate you had had with a past colleague about in his belief that the role of the VP of sales, and this was a fairly sizable organization you talked about, was to be an inside guy, right? To manage sales operations, basically. And he was commenting about the fact you're spending so much time with the customer. And really, what's sort of the appropriate mix that, that a VP of sales should have? And I, I come down squarely on your side. I mean, I've been in the VP of sales roles for years and years and, and both with, you know, startups and larger companies and, you know, everything happens outside the company, right? The thing that's most important happens outside the wall, the four walls of the organization. It's with the customer. You know, if you don't understand your customers and what they want and how they're using your products, how they're deriving value from your product, then I don't see how you can 
appropriately coach your salespeople through the sales processes and the sales opportunities they have uh, with the prospects. Yeah, I, I obviously I completely agree. And I also am acutely aware of the challenges of making the time to do that. And just as I said, <clears throat> Andy, before you and I started the interview, that when I look at my calendar now as the VP of sales uh, for Sumo Logic, VP of corporate sales for Sumo Logic, I've got no white space on my calendar. There's a lot that I'm doing internally and operationally, and it would be very easy for me to only be inside. I recognize the pressure that the the pressure that a VP of sales has to to keep things running internally, operationally. And I think it's, I know for me, I have to make a deliberate and very conscious effort to to include time every day on my calendar, at least every week that I'm interacting with customers. That's that's a priority, but I also recognize it's hard to do. And it, 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 it really, <clears throat> excuse me, takes making it a priority. Well, I think you can't succeed without it. And I think this is, to my mind, is the lesson for people listening that are in that role, a sales leadership role, is that think about it from the context to made an analogy for to think about it is think about your underperforming salespeople. You know, they have oftentimes a list of responsibilities that are not purely sales, right? You got to update your CRM system, get your reports done, you know, do your forecast, you know, all these things, other sort of responsibilities layered on top of it. And the weak ones default to being really good at that, right? I mean, it's always been my experience that the weaker salespeople are really good at updating, <laughs> updating their right. CRM records. Right. They've got good <laughs> record keeping and they do great research. <laughs> great research and so on, but not so good out in front of the customer. And and so they're doing the things that, that they start gravitating to the things that, that maybe they're finding easier to do or, or you know, let's say easier to do, right? And, and less less hard for them, less challenging to them. And I think you get that temptation with VPS sales is to say, well, gosh, I've got this, all this operational stuff I need to take care of and I'll do that. But they'll wonder at the end of the day why they're not making the numbers. You know, why they're not growing the organization or the revenue base as quickly as they need to do. And it's because they don't understand the customer. They're missing that part of it. Yeah, and I agree. Super important, super important piece of the puzzle. So... I want to get back to the topic of greed. We talked about fear, fear. but we didn't really talk about greed. And yeah. my, impression, my impression has been is that I've never hired someone who Some, said they're purely motivated by money. I, I haven't either. And, you know, Andy, my first sales job, I was interviewing It was at, for Xerox 100 years ago. And the sales manager at the time was asking me a lot of questions. He, he was clearly probing toward the greed question. And asking me about, I don't remember exactly what the questions were, but I wasn't, and I, I didn't exhibit enough of, I want to have a new BMW by the time I'm 24. And I, I, I didn't, and, and, and he told me this because he, he said the interview was basically over and he was ready to tell me goodbye and not hire me because I didn't exhibit enough of the greed characteristic. And just before I, I, I left, he had asked me, I'd flown up from Southern California up to Northern California for the interview. And he asked me if I was staying for the weekend and what I was doing. And I said, yeah, I'm, I actually, I'm running the San Francisco Marathon this weekend. And after I told him about that, he offered me the job. And he said his, like the primary uh, quality or one of the primary qualities that he would probe for would be greed. But very high also on his list was 
discipline and rigor and self-motivating. He, and he said to me later, because he told me all this after he hired me, that somebody that is going to put in the hours and the discipline and be self-motivated to go run a marathon has a great skill set to do sales. There's Because in sales, you do a lot of things every day you don't want to do. You have to be really motivated, really disciplined. No one wants to get up at 5 a.m. and do, well, I don't know anyone, and, and do an 18-mile run and then go to work. So it was interesting that he, his initial was, you know, probe for greed. And I'm with you. I've, I, it's not a motivator for me. I, I'm very, um, I'm results-oriented, but I'm, I, I don't, that's not how I'm wired. And so for me, that's definitely not something that I, I interview to. No, I mean, no, I think I mean, the people the, are, customer-oriented, if they're really results-oriented, right? I want to be able to do something for my customer. Right. Well, at the end of the day, you're going to get the, the rewards. Exactly. Do a good job, you're going to get the rewards, and the rewards are going to be substantial in sales. Yeah, and, and I think the other thing, it, it's it's not that sales, like I, I, for myself, trust me, I love nice things, and I'm ambitious, and I, I mean, I have all of those qualities, but it's not, it's not driven by greed, it's driven by achievement. It's driven by goals that I set that I want to, I want to accomplish. And there may be mixed in there financial goals that I set, but that's different. A financial goal is different than greed. And I think being able, so I look for people that are goal setters and hitting a certain Financial may be a goal that they have, but I, I really, I think we have to separate out, at least I do, and separate out and understand that there are some people that are, they're very goal-oriented, but you wouldn't call them greedy, and they're not driven in that same way. Right. So getting back to this blog topic that we've we pulled from we've the internet and we've decimated. Exactly decimated that topic, <laughs> right? We didn't like this advice clearly. Clearly. And so this person was advocating using fear and greed as elements of your sales compensation plan, do you mind what are the key elements of an effective sales compensation plan? Oh, God. Andy, I've never met a sales compensation plan that universally works and d d creates all the behaviors that you want. That's my disclaimer. I think it's really hard to do. I, I think compensation plans are really, really hard. And I, and I think the components in it is you have to look at you know, from a company perspective, you have to make sure it meets the company's objectives, obviously. Um, you know, rep productivity, it, it could be around, like we, uh, currently we look at things for linearity, meaning I want it there to be something in the compensation plan that includes hitting a number every month. So it's important that we've got some consistency. Um, it has to be meaningful, and achievable, but maybe also a stretch. It can't be a gimme. Um, it's got to be. It, it's got to be fair when you look across. Um, when you look across, let's say territories, and maybe if you've got a uh, SMB, mid market, and enterprise team, that that there's a sense of fairness regarding responsibility and quotas, and and relative to what what the compensation is going to be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I what think the I think I think fairness I think fairness and equity is a a a great theme for compensation plans. Is that it's okay at least in my mind it's been okay that that as you said maybe you've got various teams within your organization they might have slightly different plans but there does you can't assume as managers oftentimes do especially in smaller companies that 
people are going to keep private what their compensation plan is they, because because they, it always gets out. Absolutely true. No matter what, <laughs> right. it gets out. It's talked about over a beer. So I think that's a super important component. Right. So if you do something special for somebody, you really need to sort of avoid that, right? I mean, it's it's got to be something that's part of a common plan that people all have the same upside opportunities. Right. Um, and But yeah, they can be tailored slightly different and the components can be slightly different. But I think the important thing, to your point was, is you're trying to motivate certain behaviors and certain outcomes that the, are important to the company. So Instead of just sort of generally saying, well, gosh, you know, we're going to motivate people through greed, as your compensation plan should be structured to say, look, you know, we want to sell certain amounts of this product or this product and this product. Well, that needs to be reflected in the plan that you give your reps because they certainly will tailor their own activities in order to be achieve the goals that are set forth in the compensation plan. So if the comp plan isn't aligned with what you're trying to see, achieve as a company, then you've got a real disconnect and that's a problem. Right. I, I also think with comp plans that the simpler the better. So I look for simplicity in a comp plan. I look for a comp plan that can take us through the year, that we know that these are the basic components of the plan that we know are not going to change through the year. And then I will complement the compensation plan when necessary with a quarterly spiff. If something comes up that I want them to focus on for a three-month period of time, I may put in a spiff to help jumpstart jump start them thinking about it. So I, once a comp plan is set, I think best practice is you, you, you don't want to mess with a comp plan. And so you want it to be very basic, very simple, very fair. And if you need to make changes mid-year, they're best done through spiffs and things that can supplement augment. So when building a comp plan, I always take into account that there may be some spiffs, there are likely to be some spiffs that, I, that I'm going to put in during the year. And I work with finance ahead of time saying, hey, I want to make sure that we allocate funds that we can compensate, um, compensate the reps based on different spiffs. I think it's great advice. Great advice. Well, I want to finish up here. We just have a couple minutes left. Is quick question for you. What's the worst sales advice you've ever been given? Gosh, there's so many. I, I, I would, I'll tell you, Andy, because the, the recent blog post is so on my mind of fear and greed. Right. Um, that rises to the top. I think sales advice that's given over and over, and let's say as a, as a sales manager or even when I was a rep, for me, it's all around this notion that salespeople are coin-operated. And so, you know, things that I've been asked to do or plans to build or ways to interact with, with, a, with a rep, assuming that the person is coin-operated. And I, I don't know, I just bristle at that term and at that, um, that characteristic because mm -hmm. it, it, it just it makes a salesperson seem so sort of inhuman. So anything around coin operated, I tend to really to to bristle at. Whether it's you know like I said, a plan that I need to put in place right. or interacting with the sales rep, I, I I just find anything around coin operated, I I don't I don't agree. Yeah, very interesting. I like that. What would you say? I I'm curious. I I, well, I the love worst the worst sales advice I think that I ever received. And I still, like you, I bristle every time I hear this. It's revolved around this thing about always be closing, right? Uh, I mean, I it makes it all about you as a sales rep, right? And uh, it's really, it's 
last thing it is, it's about you as the sales rep. It's really, it's about the customer. And, you know, I've, I can't see how many people that, that still to this day, you know, are, are leading with that advice as sales managers to their salespeople and think that it's, it's relevant in today's world, which it's really not. And never really has been, right? Because to the, if you're so focused every time you go in to talk to a customer about, geez, how, what can I do today to close them as opposed to what can I do today to help them make a decision? There's two very different things. And the first one is people are thinking about, you know, what's, what's, what's my line, right? What's my closing line going to be? And yeah. as opposed to really what information does the customer need from me to get closer to making a decision? And so I just think that's extremely unhelpful advice. I remember getting it, gosh, day one of my first sales job and learning pretty quickly from not just my own experience, but also from the more experienced and successful reps in the office I was working at that, yeah, no, don't worry about that. You know, I, that was that was advice that I got early on also. And I think it really shifts, as you say, the focus from, or it puts the focus on me. It's all about me. It's all about me. I need to close the deal, close the deal, close the deal. And something that I do to a customer yeah. as opposed to yeah. it being about the customer and how can I be helpful. And I think it's the the most successful reps that I've worked with have been ones who've just who've been really helpful and knowledgeable and it's been about the customer and not about me doing something to them so I I completely wholeheartedly agree that that's uh, that's as bad as it that, that's as bad that's right up yeah. there I, make, I'd put that in the top 10 yeah sales is about relationships make the relationship based on what you're doing to help the customer, not on what you need to do to put a few dollars in your pocket. And that really summarizes everything we've talked about today. 100% agree. Well, good. Well, it's been a great session. Hope everybody uh, enjoyed it today. I said, our job is to help you learn something new. And hopefully you do this deliberately as part of a part of your daily plan, part of your daily action as sales rep, sales manager, sales leader, a CEO, entrepreneurs. What can I learn new today about growing my business? And hopefully we gave you some good advice today on that. And until next time, this is Andy Paul and Bridget Gleason. And we'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard and want to make sure you don't miss any upcoming episodes, please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Stitcher.com. For more information about today's guests, visit my website at andypaul.com.